I think the SEC is coming out of this looking pretty poor. Their goal, quote unquote, is to protect the average investor. That's what these regulations are designed to do. And I just don't see that happening until they give good guidance about what these companies can do and not do. Global companies face unprecedented risks and challenges in today's economy. To mitigate these legal and economic risks, companies are rapidly embracing and elevating the importance of robust ethics and compliance programs to promote positive corporate citizenship. On Corruption, Crime and Compliance, you'll hear from industry leaders and insiders about how to create effective ethics and compliance programs that will mitigate risks and maximize financial performance. Here's your host, Michael Volkov. Well, hello, everyone. Mike Volkov here for another episode with Mr. Cryptocurrency. Matt Stankwitz is back. And Matt, I'm glad we can corral you into a podcast episode to catch us up on cryptocurrency. We've been thinking about Matt getting more content out there because these episodes are pretty popular in the podcast area of legal and compliance. And if there's anything that has a lot of risks these days, it's cryptocurrency. But Matt, welcome back and glad we can catch up on a couple of issues here. Yeah, glad to be here. There's a lot going on in the industry, especially from the regulatory side of things. The SEC is moving fast and furious to issue enforcement actions and try and crowd the bad actors. They're doing Matt, well. Matt, let's hit past. Wait a minute. <laughs> you said fast and furious. And I hope that means we're not going to have 10 movies, you know, with Vin Diesel doing the cryptocurrency thing with his t-shirt. They're already making movies of the FTX fiasco. I think one may have even come out on Netflix recently. So it's, oh, you're going to see a lot of these in the crypto space. <laughs> well, Matt, fill us in. I mean, the biggest issue to me, the biggest event was the Ripple case. People held on to Ripple and people have been gaming this case since 2020. And people have been saying that this could finally unleash Ripple to the promised land that it was supposed to be. But fill us in on this. I mean, it's a fascinating decision, but it's an important decision. Yeah, this is a really interesting case for a variety of reasons. It's obviously huge for the crypto industry. One of the biggest reasons is because while the SEC has filed cases against a variety of other companies in this industry, Ripple clearly had the deepest pockets and had the most to lose here. So the industry knew that they were not going to go down without a fight. Very unlikely they were going to settle and going to push all the way to the end to try and get some clarity at the very least on whether crypto assets are a security or not. So this was really always going to be that seminal case in that regard. Lo and behold, almost one and a half, two years later, it seems like we've got some idea of which way the courts are leaning. Maybe, maybe not. We had a little discussion on it already before we hopped on Hudson Podcast Live. But just to kind of give a little background, the SEC filed charges against Ripple as a company and two of their executives, Christian Larson, one of the co-founders and original CEO, and Brad Garlinghouse, who, again, one of the co-founders and now current CEO of Ripple. During their ICO, when they raised all the funds, they raised $1.3 billion. And that was based on the price of the token at the time, I believe. So since that point, it's gone up a bit since then. <laughs> wow. I don't know what the price action has been. Obviously, the case has heard it since then. But that said, regardless, they're sitting on quite a war chest. But anyway, a lot of these tokens, the XRP tokens, 
which is the underpinning of the Ripple Ledger, they were sold on the open market. I'll tell you how the court looked at it. The court saw three buckets, essentially. The first bucket was the institutional sales. So these were sold under written contracts directly between Ripple and some outside buyer, usually a hedge fund, maybe private equity, someone with deep pockets. And those sales, Ripple raised $728 million. Let's say about a third of what we're looking at here. The programmatic sales, that was the second bucket. Those were the assets that Ripple sold on digital asset exchanges, basically sold in the open market. That were Coinbase or? Coinbase, Kraken, Gemini, I mean, any kind of place where you can buy and sell cryptocurrency tokens. So they offered it for sale, programmatic, because they basically had, I think they had like tranches of coins. We'll release a million now, 10 million now, 100 million now, whatever. Tied releases, and they were just sold in the open market to whoever wanted to buy them. For that, Ripple raised $757 million. And then the third bucket was a judge determined as other distribution. So a lot of this was mainly given out to employees and compensation for their efforts at the company, maybe some contractors, certainly to executives and board members as part of the compensation packages. And that totaled $609 million. So you've got these three buckets, each totaling, let's say, roughly the same, right? And the judge looked at each to determine which of those constitutes a security. So the judge was certain that the first bucket, the institutional sales, did, yes, constitute a security. So that covered, again, 700 some million dollars in sales. This was because the buyers, the hedge funds, private equity, they knew 100% what they were getting into. They bought directly from Ripple. And in the judge's eyes, clearly those investors were investing in the efforts of Ripple, the company, fulfilling that prong of the Howey test. And did she note these are accredited investors? Like these are people who know what they're doing when they invest in terms of these hedge funds and whatnot, that they're buying something. And in a sense, she's saying they viewed it as a security almost. Yeah. They were investing in Ripple, the company. That was their intention. And they believe that if the token increased in value, it was due to the efforts of the company, which makes sense because that's what Ripple's ultimately trying to do. But, you know, this is not just a token that has nothing to it. Ripple is trying to develop new technology for the global financial system. I believe they even say they advertise that they want to be the new SWIFT. So the way that banks and everyone moves money around the globe, if you use the blockchain like this, think about now, if you try and wire money to a different country, you know, you use Western Union or one of those companies, I mean, it could take days or weeks before the money gets there. Ripple is saying, hey, we can get that money from point A to point B in seconds with virtually no fees. I forget what exactly they advertise, but basically, if you want to send a million dollars, it'll cost pennies in fees rather than hundreds of dollars, whatever it is. Right, right. So the institutional investors knew that they received that material. They witnessed the presentations from Ripple Company, and the judge believed that that's what they were investing in ultimately. Now, this is a judge from the Southern District of New York, right? Her name was Annalise Torres. I get the first bucket. That makes sense to me. The second bucket, however, is me buying Ripple on Coinbase. I had to break it down to elementary terms, but me buying Coinbase. (laughs) And what was her analysis as to that She basically looked at the subjective expectations of those buyers and reasoned that since they were buying on the open market, 
and Coinbase, Kraken, Gemini, all those exchanges, all they do is match buyers and sellers with each other. They don't really own their own tokens. They just facilitate the meeting of those two parties. You never know who the other party is. I mean, like you said, you've used Coinbase before, but you don't know who you're buying from. It could be anyone. It could be anything. I doubt that. I doubt that. I'd be broke. I'd be bankrupt by now. But I agree with you. I don't know who the buyer is, but explain to me a little bit more about the subjective intent that goes with, why was she so focused on that? That's part of the how retest of what you believe you're doing, the transaction? That can typically be one of the factors that a court will look at. What were the expectations of the parties here? And typically, if a party is giving money to a company in order to invest in them, then that would be more likely to be considered a security. Here, she reasoned that that was not the case because they don't know who they're buying from. They don't know where that money's going to. This was Ripple selling their own tokens, but it could have been me buying from Mike or Mike buying from me. And we have no idea one way or the other. She also reasoned that a lot of buyers may not even have known that the XRP token was from Ripple, the company, had Ripple, the company behind it, or that there was any underlying technology to it, which I think has some substance. That does to me. I, I speak from my own experience. I've thrown money at a lot of poor investments where I had no idea what it did, what it was for, why it was even for sale. <laughs> I remember seeing XRP. You didn't associate it with Ripple and its technology. I mean, we yeah. read about Ripple, what not, in terms of it was supposed to be a cutting edge technology in 2016 that people were excited about. And she reasoned that some people may be investing in the XRP token just because in general, the crypto market was going wild. So if I invest in anything, it'll likely go up. They don't need to know about Ripple. Ripple doesn't need to do anything to make the price go up. They're just trying to ride that wave, which I think is fair. I'm certain there were people that invested in the token because of that. That's why they bought it, hoping the market would go up and not having any expectations of why that was the case. (laughs) Right. That may or may not have been my intention when I (laughs) first first Ripple. But it's an interesting distinction of the judge's making. It is, because like I said, typically that is a prong that courts will use to weigh in their decision. It's usually not necessarily the strongest prong, though. It is a little surprising that just because it was on the open market, that was the main driver for ruling that the programmatic sales were not a security. Personally, I don't know if that is going to withstand scrutiny on an appeal. And the SEC has already indicated that they're definitely going to appeal. So... Industry is celebrating right now, and XRP is now available for trading again on Coinbase on all these platforms that have removed it, thinking it was a security. But we'll see if that lasts because I'm not as confident as others. Oh, yeah. Really? The day that ruling came out, XRP increased in price by 30% within the first hour, and that has continued to go up since then, I believe. Did she do anything with the third bucket, though, that you mentioned, or that was just sort of? Stuff that's off to the side for employees and benefits. and Yes. That was not considered a security because it was just for the employees. That one was not quite as important for her. There was a much less analysis behind that one. And I think that's right. Typically, you see this with stock compensation, and it can sometimes be a tricky analysis, but I don't think that one bothers me or really anyone in the industry as much. But like I explained, though, the SEC has already indicated that they do plan to appeal this. As you can imagine, other companies that are subject to the SEC's wrath right now are trying to take this run, saying, 
hey, look, we've got case law in our side now. You can't prosecute us. And one of those cases specifically is their case against Terraform Labs and the individual named Duquan. You guys may know him as the guy behind the Terra environment, UST and the TerraCoin that collapsed and ruined billions of dollars of investors' money. It was a pretty wild Ponzi scheme that guy deserves to be in prison. (laughs) That aside, they filed a motion to dismiss almost immediately because they're in the SDNY as well. And you rely on this Ripple case. The SEC replied saying, look, like judge respectfully, yeah, that judge blew it. (laughs) You know, that Ripple was wrongly decided. And the judge in that case, Judge Rakoff, actually sided with the SEC. And her exact words in her ruling were, Howie makes no such distinction between purchasers, and it makes good sense that it did not. So it seems that she believes that Ripple was wrongly decided as well. We're also going to have a bunch of interveners, Amakai, who are going to come into this. How do you see the odds? And, and we did. In the Second Circuit. Yeah. We've already seen you know, a lot of amicus briefs filed for the Ripple decision, and you'll see them in all these cases now, just because the stakes are so high. We will see it certainly in the Second Circuit, and at some point, unless Congress can act, like we may see this in the Supreme Court as well. I don't think that's good for the cryptocurrency industry. I think that it's more likely than not, there will be a negative case law behind it. And ideally, we'll get Congress to act before them to figure out some kind of regulatory scheme. Like we've discussed, I mean, the Howey test was decided eons ago at this point. <laughs> at least for me. Orange groves yeah. or whatever. It was like interesting. And that was orange groves. Right. Yeah. And the test is really not very workable. The SEC seems to think that it's very clear, but we've gone through this with other types of asset classes where maybe it can, maybe it can't. There's no real good guidance one way or another. So we'll just do it to the best we can. And crypto is no different. It's a brand new asset. It's virtually impossible to pigeonhole it to any other kind of real world asset out there right now. So how do you regulate it? (laughs) I think we all agree that it needs to be regulated in some regard because there's a lot of fraud out there, a lot of bad people taking advantage of people. But that said, that doesn't mean you should cripple the good projects. Don't throw the baby out of the bathware, right? Don't cripple the good projects just because there's a lot, you know, some bad people out there. What's your response to the SEC's approach, which some critics who have said, this is regulation by enforcement as opposed yeah. to regulation by rules and rulemaking processes and the traditional way of regulating an industry. What's your view on that? Yeah, I agree with that. I think the SEC is coming out of this looking pretty poor. Their goal, quote unquote, is to protect the average investor. That's what these regulations are designed to do. And I just don't see that happening until they give good guidance about what these companies can do and not do. We talked about it a bit when we discussed the Coinbase enforcement action. And I think that's a great example because Coinbase has tried everything in its power to do the right thing. And they've tried their best to be transparent with the SEC, to communicate with them, to say, hey, this is what we're going to do. This is what we want to do. They've come in in the past and say, hey, we want to register. How do we register and what do we register for? And they've never got any answers from the SEC. And the SEC just says, well, you should know. you got to figure it out. We're not your attorneys, right. which is fair in some regard, right? But that said, it's not helpful. The SEC needs to provide some kind of guidance here. Like I said, though, I don't know if it can fit within the existing framework. I think it really relies more on Congress and lawmakers to develop some kind of regulatory scheme that fits here. 
allows the new technology to thrive and to foster, but also protects the average investor who unfortunately has fallen prey to a lot of scams, a lot of fraudulent activity. Yeah. Well, that's well said, Matt. Well said. Okay. Let's turn to, after the ripple, let's go to sort of a recent case that you wrote about on the blog, but to me shows again, this can be, and we've seen this every time, every time there's a new technology, there are fraudsters out there ready to use it for improper purposes and, I mean, legal purposes here. But the Celsius case, tell us about the Celsius case. And it's like I read more and more about these kind of activities that are going on. Yeah. Speaking of fraud. (laughs) Yeah, speaking of fraud. Yeah. So recently prosecutors unsealed their indictment against Alex Mashinsky, who is the CEO of Celsius and his buddy Ronnie Cohen Pavon, the chief revenue officer of Celsius. They were fraudsters from the get-go. There was a lot of rumblings within the industry that they were not doing things properly. Celsius was an interesting company at its height. At the end of the day, it had its own cryptocurrency exchange. So to that extent, it was a competitor to Coinbase, for example. Deposit your Bitcoin in it, then trade that Bitcoin for Ethereum or Dogecoin or Ripple, whatever else you would want on it. And they offered a lot of assets on there. They were based in New Jersey, so it should have been the first sign that That's <laughs> something That's wasn't right. Yeah. Since you live in New Jersey, but go ahead. Go ahead, Matt. Yep. yep. Based in New Jersey. And at its height, it held $25 billion in user assets. In addition to the exchange, Celsius also had their own token, the Cell token. And they used that to pay a lot of the rewards out to the users, but it was also available for trade on the exchange. A couple of interesting things they did was they also offered loans against crypto holdings as collateral. So a few companies were doing this at the time. For example, let's say you had $100,000 worth of Bitcoin. If you needed to buy something or even just pay your taxes on it, typically you would have to sell the Bitcoin, which is a taxable event, and you might get hit with more taxes on top of that. Instead, you could take out a loan of, let's say, $10,000, use that Bitcoin as collateral, and then you don't have that taxable event and use that loan as cash or whatever you want to do. In addition, what really sparked the most interest in the platform is they actually paid interest on your holdings in the platform. It's almost like a bank account, right? Like if you put your money in a savings account, right now banks are paying, let's say, 4% interest because rates are so high. Salesforce was doing the same thing. If you deposited, again, $100,000 worth of Bitcoin in it, they were paying upwards of 8% interest on those holdings. At the time, your high yield savings account was maybe 1%, arguably lower than that at most banks. So for this, this was really attractive to a lot of people that had any kind of crypto holdings. You got 8% if you took your rewards in Celsius tokens, or 4 to 5% if you took it in the native token, you know, if you got your interest rewarded in Bitcoin for your Bitcoin holdings. So really popular. That said, interest rates so high, virtually impossible to keep up with that. The company was never profitable, (laughs) as far as I'm aware. And the only way to pay that kind of interest is to make riskier and riskier investments. Like I said, they were offering the loans and that was part of it. So the revenue that they generated from the loan business, they would then pay back to the token investors or token depositors. But they were also selling user funds to others outside of Celsius or loaning them or whatever it may be, investing them in different projects and ventures, hoping for a return large enough to fund this crazy machine. Needless to say, they didn't work out. (laughs) 
sounds to me like it's a classic Ponzi scheme because they're giving you money that they really were covering the interest that you earned and they would pay it from other depositors. That's what I thought was ultimately going on here. They can cover their costs. It got to a point where that was the case, but they were not necessarily doing that initially. They were trying to make legitimate business out of it. At the time, there were a lot of companies willing to pay high rates to borrow tokens. So if they lent out Bitcoin to a large fund that wanted to short it or do whatever they wanted with it, they could make a good return. The problem is most of their loans were made without any collateral. So when the prices began to drop, the loans were called in and these companies couldn't make their payments. And that's it. There was just no recourse. So they, they lent out the user funds, got no money for it, and couldn't get them back. Despite all of this, you know, the worst part is that the CEO, Alex Mashinsky, just continued to lie to the public over and over and over and over again. <laughs> now, what caught the status of the company that they were doing great? Everything, whatever it was. But you would claim it's the safest place for your crypto. Meanwhile, they're taking it and giving these uncollateralized loans out to whoever wanted it. It was never actually profitable, despite the claims that it was. And time and time again, the operations folk that were under him kept saying, it's like, look, like we can't afford to pay these rates. You got to cut these rates. 8% is way too high. And at this time, like I said, there were other competitors doing the same thing. And they all cut their rates rather low at this point because the market started to struggle. And Mashinsky said, no, we keep it here. So we'll get more customers, we'll get more funds. And yeah, that's when it started to spiral into that Ponzi scheme. One of the other things that he did, again, we have this sell token in the Celsius platform. And who are the two largest holders? Celsius platform itself, of course, but in terms of individuals, the two largest holders were Alex Mashinsky <laughs> and his buddy, Ronnie Cohen-Beba. Their goal was always to drive the price of that token up. And at certain points, they did that by using customer funds to make large purchases of the sell token on the open market. So there would suddenly be these large purchases of maybe a billion dollars in a single week. Obviously, the price would rise sky high. And during this time frame, Mashinsky and Cohen Paybon would be selling their personal holdings into this surge. So they were intentionally manipulating the price upwards for their own personal benefit. So they're charged with fraud, wire fraud, every kind of fraud that you can think of. They're looking at yeah. serious jail time. Deservedly so. Even when the rumors started to come out that Celsius must be insolvent, there's no way they can keep this up and there's no way they have the funds to pay this. Mashinsky always publicly on Twitter, on he would do these YouTube campfire, you know, fireside chats, always said, no, we are profitable. We have more than enough funds to pay this. We have more than enough funds to cover all user withdrawals. And that was never the case. Eventually, they became insolvent, declared bankruptcy, and they stranded $4.7 billion of mm. user funds in the platform. Unbelievable. So a lot of people lost it's a lot it's of Celsius. Yeah, but you know what, Matt? Like These are horrible headlines for an industry that's trying to gain traction. You'll always have people running up to Congress and saying, look at these abuses. But the argument is, this has got to get regulated in some respect. And we may lose some efficiency through the regulation, but you have to protect against, I mean, there are a lot of investors who are getting hurt. I mean, we're contacted pretty regularly by victims who want to sue these companies, but the problem is their operations spread all over the world. 
to bring a lawsuit against them is difficult. Yeah. And look though, yeah, it was a cryptocurrency company, but this could have and does happen with all other kinds of assets. This really wasn't crypto specific. This guy just rode the wave and made the crypto company to get all the money. We talk about regulating it. We have laws that make this illegal. <laughs> like this was wire fraud and that. Right. But look, we've had securities, yeah. Ponzi schemes and pump and dump schemes and everything that you can imagine. People are going to game the system. But at least to me, this just seems like for these guys to get away like this is just unreal. At least Ripple is running a business. Bitcoin runs a business. Coinbase, to me, you know, I'm a big advocate for Coinbase. They're trying to build a compliance program. They put money into it. They're trying to do it the right way. And you can make a lot of money if you do it the right way. The compliance is not antithetical to being a successful crypto market exchange. And, you know, I think that the more crypto companies come to Volkov Law and learn about compliance and learn about AML controls and things like that, that the better the industry becomes in the I think eventually it's going to get there somehow because this is untenable the way it's going right now. I agree. And it's true. I think compliance actually makes their lives easier because it will get rid of a lot of the issues that even just hurt profitability. You don't want to have fraudsters using your platform. You don't want to have sanctioned individuals using your platform. Right. You don't want any of that. And keeping that off is much more beneficial for the business. But you're right. Guys like Celsius give the industry a bad name. And honestly, when we look back on it, it's hindsight, obviously, but a lot of things that they were doing were a little bit too good to be true. That really should have been the first hint that something wasn't right with them. So that said, it looks like they're going to get their just desserts now. The SEC and the DOJ are after them. So it's a parallel civil and criminal proceeding. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're facing jail time. (laughs) I get it. I get it. All right, Matt. Well, look, good to catch up with you. We'll get you back for some more crypto talk. Again, people who are interested in crypto issues and compliance issues, how do they get in touch with you again? Yeah. Always feel free to reach out. My email is nstankwitz at volkofflaw.com. I know my name could be difficult to spell, so we do have a contact form on our website, volkofflaw.com. If you use that, that will actually come to my inbox. We'll always respond as soon as we can. We love talking about this stuff. We'd love to help. Even if you may not have the resources for a full-on risk assessment or audit of the program or anything like that, you can always just ask some questions and we're happy to help you out with some small things here and there. But yes, we'd love to talk about this. Hopefully we'll be back soon with some more information. All right. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. We'll be back next week with another episode. Yep. Thanks, Mike. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way to support the show is by subscribing on your favorite listening platform. To learn more and connect with Michael Volkov, go to volkovlaw.com. 